Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky broadband and lightning fast speeds. See sky.ie for more. Hello there and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. For more than 20 years, the writer, broadcaster, podcaster and filmmaker John Ronson has been exploring the peculiar and sometimes rather dark corners of contemporary society, including the sources of such things as conspiracy theories, the nature of political extremism and the impact of the internet on pretty much everything in the world. He has mostly done that by talking to the people behind those phenomena and finding out what makes them tick. His latest series for the BBC is very much in that vein, as he looks at our current culture wars through the origin stories of some of the key issues which drove them and continue to drive them to this day. Everything from a Christian evangelical filmmaker who kick-started the modern anti-abortion movement to the right-wing radio host who ignited a moral panic about satanic child abuse and a transgender woman expelled from a 1980s feminist music festival. John is going to be coming to Dublin in a couple of weeks' time with a live version of Things Fell Apart and he joins me for today's Inside Politics. John, you're very welcome. Delighted to talk to you. How are you? Before we get into the the podcast itself and the series and the stories, maybe we just just establish, because this is a bone of contention and stuff, what are the culture wars? Okay, I think the, the best definition that I read was the battle for dominance over conflicting values. So it tends to stay away from economic matters and it's about... Yeah, conflicting values. So the first two great culture wars of the modern era uh, were diversity of thought in school textbooks uh, and uh, and abortion. Those those were the two that kind of kicked the modern culture wars off. What's so interesting about the latter is is how the Christian right were manipulated into being anti-abortion. It was after Roe versus Wade, it was only the Roman Catholics. It was the Roman Catholics who were protesting quite quietly and peacefully outside clinics. Um, The Christian right were uh, ambivalent, pro-choice even. And this weird father and son, evangelical leader, Christian art historian, through a very odd set of circumstances... Uh, manipulated Christian evangelists into being anti-abortion. It's such a fascinating and unexpected story. Now, arguments over abortion is something that we're very familiar with here in Ireland. And in fact, you can actually draw a direct political line, I think, from the original Roe versus Wade decision by the Supreme Court in the early 70s in America to what happened with us with our Eighth Amendment and the, the various things which followed until it was finally removed three and a half decades later. But I am struck by the fact, maybe not surprised, but struck all the same, that that story that you described there and all the other ones are all American. Are the culture wars in their origin and still essentially American. I I could have done a few. There were a few British stories I could have done. I could have done Mary Whitehouse. I could have done one or two others. But it struck me that when 
uh, Christian evangelists were prodded into becoming uh, warriors in the early 1970s in America. And then from that came the rise of Jerry Falwell and the moral majority. And that, you know, escalation of, of conflict on both sides that followed on from that all took place in America. And those were like the pebbles thrown in the pond. And that's what I was looking for. I was looking for the pebbles thrown in the pond. Uh, the ripples were what then happened in Europe and and, and everywhere else. But um, But the pebbles did seem to be American stories. Because one of the things I wonder about America, um, I was talking to a colleague about this the other day, and we were talking about when we were young, which was a very long time ago, late 80s, early 90s, something like that. It, it was it was a commonplace. It was accepted that we were saturated with American culture, that we'd been taken over by America. We had been Americanized in our brains. Mm-hmm. But little did we know that that was not the case at all, because the way in which America inhabits my imagination now and the way in which everything, the smallest events in America instantaneously pop up into my consciousness is of a different order from what it was 30 or 40 years ago when people vaguely heard two days later that Sinead O'Connor had ripped up a picture of the Pope on American telly. You know, it's just a completely different world we're in now. We're all Americans, are we? (laughs) Are we? Um, I think the... uh, It's interesting, you know, speaking about having just done a show for the BBC, there were times in the past... When you say, I don't, no American, I don't want any American stories. I was always drawn to America. I loved it. I, I would, I, when I wrote my book, The Men Who Stare at Goats, my cameraman uh, from Belfast, David Barker, said to me one day, do you know how many flights we've been on to do this story? A hundred. So that's, that's, how, that's how dedicated I always was to telling American stories. A hundred killing, destroying, you know, flights for one story. Um, and what was the attraction? <sighs> I kind of romanticised America, I'd say. I, I, I romanticised the the mystery of it. I've always been drawn to. I'm very, I've always been drawn to mystery. I remember when I went to Broadmoor for the psychopath test. Broadmoor, what used to be called the Broadmoor Asylum for the Criminally Insane. And I remember sitting there, and I turned to a nurse, and I said, "This is in England, of course." I turned to a nurse, and I said, "God, I feel so lucky to be in Broadmoor." And the nurse looked at me like I was nuts and said, well, we've got some spare beds, if you like. Uh, and that's how I feel when I go to America. I just feel incredibly lucky to be in some tiny little town in, in Arkansas, finding some strange story, I, get, getting to go to a place where people would never normally go. Uh, so I, I romanticised it for that reason, I'd say. But also, of course, we do live in their world, Um we live in the world that Trump created. We live in the world that the tech utopians created, the libertarians, uh, the culture warriors. Yeah. And there's always a sense, there has been for a long time, that their present is our future. Yeah. Well, they often say it all starts in California. So it starts in California, moves to the East Coast, and then moves to, to Europe. Having said that, the other thing that's always struck me about America and really hit me hard when I first visited there for the first time was that although I felt very familiar with so many things, the sights, and the sounds and the culture and the voices and all the things, I realised after a while that it is also still quite a foreign country uh, to us in Europe. And you mentioned the evangelical movement and its role in, in all of this. And really one of the most moving and, and I would suggest the most positive of the stories that you tell in the series is the one involving the televangelist Tammy Lee 
Baker. Mm. Um, and it has a happy ending, which many of them don't have. And it's a kind of a, it's a it, it comes across as almost a creed occur for, for, for empathy. Uh, maybe yeah. you can tell our listeners about that. Oh, it's so, and I'm going to be talking about this particular story in full with mystery guests at Liberty Hall on June the 10th. So uh, I'll tell the story very fully there. But yeah, Tammy Faye Baker was a televangelist who was you know, kind of troubled. She had anxiety issues. She had a drug dependency. The other televangelists would would mock her and ridicule her. And so she'd like put on all of this makeup as a suit of armour. And then they tell her that she looked like a French whore. So she'd put on even more makeup. She was spiralling. And uh, her peer group were very homophobic. I mean, homophobic to the extent that Jerry Falwell, one of her peers, convinced Ronald Reagan to not say the word AIDS in public for four years. For four years, the president didn't say the word AIDS, not until 1985. Um, But because they were bullying and mocking Tammy and she felt so alone, she found herself identifying more with the objects of their scorn than with them themselves. And so one day in 1985... On her little TV show, Tammy's House Party, which was like an afternoon chat show for for Christian housewives, she invited a pastor, a gay pastor with full-blown AIDS onto the show. And what happened when he was on the show and what happened next was, I called the episode a miracle because it was nothing short of a miracle. It's a complete tearjerker as well. I don't want to give it away. People should listen to it or indeed come yeah. along to the to the live show. But I did find my, my my eyes were getting a little moist by the end of it. Oh, well, me too. Me too. And I would get I would get emails from people saying I was driving up the M6 and I had to pull over because I was crying so hard. Uh, yeah, it's a good feeling to, to make Britain cry. <laughs> that story obviously centres around a, a TV presenter another one centres around a filmmaker another one is about an actor uh, there's another mm. one about that starts off with a with a radio host and then there's another one that happens at a, at a music festival and there's another one essentially about a comedian an, an early online comedian so when we talk about Culture Wars this is a question that's close to my heart because I'm both the culture editor and the politics podcast presenter when we right. talk about cult- the culture part of Culture Wars is it that Everything that's fought out now in the public sphere is blurred or is in, indistinguishable from entertainment, I suppose. First, can I say I never noticed that that connection between the different uh, uh, protagonists of the show until you just said it. And, and you're absolutely right. And I, and I never noticed it before. So thank you for pointing that out. Uh, second, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a dysfunctional relationship between these different power bodies. So, for instance, when it comes to social media and the mainstream media, uh, well, actually, it was so interesting. You know, when Twitter started, it was this, your namesake, uh, Graham Linehan, was the person who got me into Twitter. He said, you've got to join, this is 2008, you've got to join Twitter. It's a place where no one fights. That's what he said to me. Graham Linehan said that. Yeah, back in 2008. (laughs) That is how much the world has changed since 2008. Graham, that's Graham banned by Twitter, Linehan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, but back in 2008, that was, we couldn't have imagined what would happen. Twitter was this kind of utopia where people would admit uh, shameful secrets to each other and other people would say, oh my God, I'm exactly the same. And then uh, and then what happened? And, and let me tell you, because it, it answers a part of your question. Um, I think the mainstream media first thought, oh, we'll just ignore it and it will go away. And then it didn't go away. So then the mainstream media thought, 
you know what we're going to do? We'll control it. We'll do these articles, like who are the 10 best tweeters in the media? Uh, and that was, for me, I think that was that was the, the snake coming into the Garden of Eden because suddenly it became like performative. Like, oh my God, I need to make it to one of those lists. <laughs> I need to be accepted. Um, so that's that's when it all started to go wrong. It became it, it stopped being unselfconscious and became performative. And then when Twitter, like completely, you know, when social media completely outsmarted and beat the mainstream media, the mainstream media became like the nerdy kid in the school playground sucking up to the school bully because they didn't want to get got either. (laughs) So, you know, us journalists in the mainstream media are supposed to be fearless. But then when we saw people getting torn apart on social media, we shut up. We didn't say anything because we were scared that we'd be got, which is the opposite of the bravery that journalists are supposed to display. So so that's what happened in that little corner of of your question. But... um, but yeah, we, we we look to social media for for our stories. Um, oh, these poor kids on on social media, these these poor kids like in Hollywood who are trying to make it. They will manipulate on Instagram. They'll manipulate their location to make it look like they're somewhere more exciting than they actually are. You know, hey, I'm here on the Warner Brothers lot. Anyone can pretend to be on the Warner Brothers lot now on Instagram by <laughs> by modifying their location. Uh, and yeah, we're, we're all looking to social media for for news events, for stories. The more Instagram or Twitter followers you've got, if you're a young actor, the more likely you are to be cast. Uh, so yeah, this hugely dysfunctional place that is social media is is in charge of everything now. Although I do wonder, and I think your origin stories illustrate this. I think it's 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 easy, although it's also correct, to point at social media for a lot of these phenomena. I don't know if you read, there's a very good essay by Jonathan Haidt in The Atlantic mm. last month about some of the impacts that social media has had on, on society over the last over the last 10 years or so. But a lot of your stories begin before the internet. And yes. um, I have a very boring theory I was boring my producer with before we started recording here, which is actually the digital age began in the 1970s and the 1980s with the invention of the CD, with the invention of, of cable and satellite TV which allowed things like Tammy, mm. uh, Tammy Faye Baker to happen. And, and that's the point where you get this collision between the 60s social revolution and a, counter, a counter-revolutionary backlash and this media revolution happening at the same time. I, I think, again, that's a very good point. And that thing I was, I was just talking about before, about how the mainstream media was like sucking up to, uh, to the new media, that was also happening in the 70s and 80s you, with the satanic panic. You had these Christian radio stations doing these stories about how, you know, we were getting, you know, people were getting kidnapped and made to take part in satanic ceremonies and uh, Satanists had taken over daycare centres, all this like nonsense. Uh, but it didn't stick. It didn't stay to Christian radio. Uh, CNN started doing shows about it. Geraldo Rivera started doing shows about it. So once again, the the, the mainstream media saw something brewing uh, that was full of conflict and and dizziness and you know destabilization and lunacy. I thought, oh, we can use that. <laughs> and they didn't. They didn't debunk it. You know, Geraldo Rivera didn't make a show about satanic panic to debunk it. Uh, he made a show about it to to prodded it, to fan its flames. And the satanic panic leads to, and I, again, that's a fascinating origin story because it doesn't necessarily map 
exactly easily to the the binary of the culture wars that we do that we have at the moment. You have a, mm. a woman, a teacher, who was falsely accused and wrongly convicted mm. of the most terrible abuse of children, none of which had happened whatsoever. And this was all attested to um, by professionals, medical professionals, and um, she's been exonerated legal experts. Now. She's been exonerated for um, for many years. So that was a, a, a an absolutely terrifying moral panic that you could map onto all kinds of things that have happened since on on both sides of the culture wars. Yeah, this is what I found so interesting. I'm thinking about whether or not to tell this story at Liberty Hall and I think I I will because the thing that that I found most interesting about it is the people who piled in on this woman in the the early 80s, Kelly Michaels, uh, they weren't... You know, rural, right-wing Christians from a southern state who you might imagine would believe in these crazy satanic ideas. These were progressives. They were liberals. This was an upmarket part of New Jersey. I think it was Maplewood, if I remember rightly, a nice part of town. Professionals, people going into Manhattan, and they're the ones who believed it. Uh, Just like quite often on social media, when some huge pseudoscience takes place and somebody gets piled in on for something that they didn't do, the instigators are progressives, they can be liberals, they can be well-educated people, uh, they could be um, uh, wealthy people. So those were the ones who powered it. It just shows that no one is immune to irrational thoughts that leads us into ruining people's lives. Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa... in the bedroom (laughs) or swiping in the bathroom (laughs) I said swiping you'll never be without it switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast for more info see sky.ie forward slash speeds 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base I, I do wonder who's winning the culture wars. I mean, sometimes they do have real life effects. Um, the most obvious immediate one in the United States is that imminent Roe versus Wade decision, which has really got to change, change the lives of a lot of, a, lot, a lot of people in America. But an awful lot of the time they seem to be as much performative or psychological as they are real world. Is that fair? Well, I'd say the ultimate winners are the, are the tech billionaires, these libertarian utopians who win who win whoever, you know, whoever wins or loses the actual war itself because they win whatever happens. So they're the big winners. Uh, And who are the losers? Well, to be honest, right now, at this moment that we're talking, I'd say that the left are are doing worse than the right. I think the left had an excellent run uh, with Me Too and with Black Lives Matter and, uh, you know, the, the, the new diversity in the culture. They had, like, an excellent run. And I'm very glad, by the way, to have lived through that period. I love the fact that the movies now aren't just white people. I'm, you know, I'm very happy about that. Um, but I, I, but you see, with the backlash of Joe Rogan, uh, Elon Musk, and so on, Jordan Peterson, I think there's now a a bit of a sweep. The pendulum has swung in the other direction, and I think 
rightly or wrongly, because I think they've sort of been manipulated and propagandized into thinking this. You know, they now all see the left as these kind of you know t- awful people who just want to like ruin your life if you say something slightly wrong, and everyone has to be gender fluid and all of these sort of cliches. Where you know, I think they've been manipulated into being more fearful and more angry than they should be. But there is some truth to it. I, I would say that the Rogans mm. and the Elon Musks are, are, are now winning. Because you talk to, you have a another very interesting origin story about race and how race is treated in schools. And, and listening to that, one of the things that occurred to me is that um, it's generally a received wisdom that if people meet each other and if people actually engage with each other, there's a more chance of empathy and some form of mutual understanding. But there's a kind of counterindication to that, too, is that if you put them in the same room, sometimes they can really rip each other to shreds, as they do in a lot of these kind of school board meetings that, uh, that, that, that you record. And also these sort of civil wars mm. break out and they seem to be even more vicious than the broader culture war. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, so these huge public conflicts of people face-to-face are happening at school board meetings and town board meetings across America, uh, including my town. Um, I should say, I live in a little town in upstate New York where there's been some pretty fiery town board meetings. I would say, though, once the meetings are over and everybody goes back to their homes, everyone's rather nice to each other on the streets and would help each other out. And if somebody was in trouble, they'd help each other out, whether they're Trumpy or Bideny. And I literally live, I mean, to the left of me, there were Trump flags. To the right of me, there were Black Black Lives Matter flags. That literally where I live. Uh, And there's no real conflict. So So still it's being stoked by the online utopians. And I personally think that this, all this talk about impending civil war is is maybe a little overblown. There's a new thought in America that America is hurtling towards civil war and the way to stop it would would be to behave in a more draconian way towards the people who will instigate the civil war who are the the far right, the, the white nationalists. Uh, this is what the experts tend to believe. Uh, I'm, I'm a little, I'm kind of dubious about it. Um, I think, you know, hornets um, sting you when you prod the hornet's nest too much, is is my view. Uh, And I think that the people who are worried about impending civil war might might be the ones who accidentally instigate it by behaving in too draconian a matter towards the people who they think are going to be instigators if you see what I mean. I do. I, I think that's very interesting because there, there can be sometimes, sometimes quite a lazy analysis which looks for the mirroring that happens between both sides. And But there is undoubtedly some mirroring. So you see mm. the anti-rationalism, the kind of anti-enlightenment kind of position of the far right, to some extent mirrored on on the on the progressive left on the extremes of the of the progressive left as well and you also see perhaps yeah. um a uh, a lack of interest in in basic civil rights as as being more important than anything else you see that on on both sides too for example there's a there's a phenomenon of the new right in the united states which basically would like to see a victor orban type uh, type government in america mm. so so there is a kind of a mirror going on there isn't there 
I would say so, yes. I mean, obviously, one, you always have to be careful about politicising things because of the possibility of false equivalence. But there's all, but also, both sides in something has become so unfashionable because people do do it for bad reasons. Uh, those of us who actually think it's kind of an interesting thing to do, we have to like tread carefully. But uh, but yeah, I, I, I agree with what you just said. The other thing is, is that the average age of a QAnon devotee is like 40 to 60. So if they're the ones who are going to, Start this, start the civil war. Then at least you know, at least they're all pretty old. <laughs> well, it might be the fact that you know all our societies, yeah. um, not so much America and Ireland, but most Western societies are getting old mm. fairly fast, and old people angrily on their computers are essentially what's driving our politics, aren't yeah, they? That has to be part exactly. of this. Exactly. Luckily, at least, you know, they're not going to take to the streets quite as much if they're 60. So that's that's one bit of good news. No, you're unlikely to have brown shirts on the street if the brown shirts are all 75. Right, exactly. Yeah, so so I personally think that this all this talk about impending civil war is overblown, but I do think there is a danger of making it happen. My next story, in fact, that I'm working on now is is about this this topic. So the... The the race issue, or rather I should say the racism issue, the discussion of racism and what racism constitutes uh, in America. It's obviously a hotter topic in America than it is here, but it's a hot topic everywhere. Yes. You talk to uh, Robin D'Angelo, and some of our listeners will be aware, she's an extremely controversial figure in the United States. She's really at the centre of this um, argument over what, what the right calls CRT, although the left comes back and says CRT is something else entirely. But essentially what it is, is addressing concepts such as implicit bias, inherent racism, inherent structural racism, and the the fact of white privilege. And she's the author of a book called White Fragility. You interviewed her and uh, I thought it was interesting. You seemed sympathetic to some of what she had to say and less to others, other parts. Mm. Yeah, it was a pretty no mean feat to make a big series about the culture wars and not elicit much controversy um, and I'm very glad that it didn't but the one thing I got a little bit criticised for was people thought I was a little bit too too soft on Robin D'Angelo and I think the reason why is because all the things you just said implicit bias systemic racism I mean those things are that they're you know they really do exist and so to say that those things don't exist is sort of blinding yourself to the possibility of learning more about how the world works and also making things a little bit better. So I suppose that, so I agree with her about that stuff. Where I disagree with her about is, is um, um, well, two things, actually. Firstly, I think she would advocate shame, you know, people feeling ashamed. She would want people to, to be ashamed and would want to learn from that shame. And I'm not sure I, I agree with wanting people to have such negative emotions. The other thing, though, going back to the Civil War question, is that, um, you know, I've only just really thought of this. When she talks about implicit bias, unconscious racism, I think those are really good points. Uh, when people talk about how the radical right in America are driven by racism, and racism is there is their main agenda. I think history and evidence shows that that's not true, actually. Um, What they don't like is government overreach. They want to be left alone. A lot of people on 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 the right aren't motivated by racism. And so when the civil war experts say that the next civil war is going to be a racist one and it's going to come from racists... Again, I think history has shown that that's not necessarily true. Even Timothy McVeigh, the Oklahoma City bomber, was not 
was not motivated by racism. There, there were moments in his life when he was racist, but that bomb wasn't motivated by racism. It was motivated by government overage. Is this, and this in a way goes back to my, my, my earlier question about Americanism. Is this a superimposition of some very American ideas which are rooted in very specific parts of American history and an attempt to universalise them in an almost... People have described some of these theories as being quasi-religious in a way because, I mean, the, the kind mm. of thing you talked about, the sense of guilt, everyone has, everyone has yeah, original sin. The original sin, exactly. Or every white person has original sin, at least. That... that that does have a quasi-religious confessional element to it. Yeah, I agree. And in fact, I remember a few years ago, I, I when I was still tweeting things, I, I tweeted something about, you know, white privilege being like the original sin. And I got so much... I mean, I know it sounds pretty terrible, but, you know, but actually I think I was making a pretty good point there, that there's certain, you know, there is, a, just as you said, there's a sort of quasi-religious idea to... To, you know, if you're born with the white privilege, that's it. There's nothing you can do. You just have to, you know, try and make amends, try, you know, and so on. And, and yeah, that feels pretty religious to me. And the other part, which I think you did mention um, to her in your interview, is the, is the suggestion that um, if you define everybody by their race and therefore white people all have to bear in mind the, the guilt which they bear because they're white, um, you're inviting an intensified sense of identity and opposition based on racial identity mm. um, from the very people who you're trying to convert, perhaps. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, you know, ultimately, identity politics just turns people away from each other. It's it's not a place where I want to be. I, I want to be in a place where everybody treats each other with, with curiosity and empathy and humanity and compassion. And identity politics is all about tribalism, all about withdrawing from each other, all about, you know, grievance and so on. Um so yeah, it's not uh, saying all of that. I've I feel I've learned a lot from the left these past four or five years. Like I I feel that you know Me Too and Black Lives Matter and all of those things, you know, have have taught me a lot. So I'm certainly not saying ah you know not interested in any of that stuff. But it's but you know you can you can see the positives, but also identify the fact that there's some real negatives going along with those positives. And do you feel at all, this is something I feel, so I'll ask you if you feel it. Um, I mean, I'm a journalist and I've pontificated at times about the dangers of the rabbit hole in modern, you know, uh, modern media. Um, And I was doing that before I actually felt the tug of the rabbit hole myself. But I do feel it out there. Sometimes you feel you're swimming in strong currents and you could be dragged down Mm. if you weren't careful. You could starting start, quote unquote, doing your own research yeah. and God knows where, where it might lead you. Do you actually feel that that danger yourself at all when you're doing all this? Yeah, once in a while, once in a while I, I do feel that. In fact, I, I can't tell you what the story is, but I'm doing a story at the moment which is partly about civil war and it's partly about um, a, consp- a particular conspiracy theory. And when I started researching this conspiracy theory, I felt myself being dragged down and thinking, oh my God, this thing might actually be true. What I did was I left the story alone for a few months and when I went back to it with a fresh eye, everything became much clearer. So I would say that's for, for journalists, but for everyone. Uh, patience, uh, moving away from something and then moving back to it after a period of, of time to cool off. These are all positive things. We must always be aware of our own biases. When I teach students, which isn't very often, but when I do, I often tell them that, that there's a very good book called mistakes were made but not by me which is about 
all the cognitive biases that we all of us suffer from. When we realize it in ourselves, um, A, it makes us treat other people with more humanity and B, it, it means that we're less likely to fall down the rabbit hole. And does this change world in which we live, which has changed enormously since you started your career and I started mine, does it make the job that you do and the way you think about that job different? The fact that people can talk back at you more, the fact that you have instantaneous communication with the entire world, the fact that you see lots of stuff you never had might have seen. Um, do all those things think, make the way that you think about whatever it is that you're trying to do change in any fundamental way? Yeah, I, I think that, that it all make, it makes everything a little bit harder. Uh, if I see mm. a story unfold on Twitter, for instance, I, I never want, I always want to be the first person to do a story. I, don't, I never want to be the second. So one problem I have is if I see, even if it's like 50 people discussing a story on Twitter, it kind of puts me off wanting to do the story myself. I think it's out there and it's been done, which is kind of irrational, to be honest, but it has stopped me from doing a few stories over the years. So that side of things I think is bad. The, the another side that's bad is, you know, we're we're human. We don't want to be piled in on. We don't want thirty people screaming at us. And you, you know, it's it's hard. In in the face of that, you do one of two things. You become like Eve in the Garden of Eden. You know, suddenly feeling all self conscious and wanting to hide behind the tree, uh, or you become like a jerk. And you become like a sort of unshameable jerk, <laughs> Where like like a hospital superbug who's like been piled in on so often they're now immune <laughs> and they've sort of grown to like consume. So both of those things aren't very good, really. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and they do have all kinds of potentially bad effects on people. And those people, are most most of whom are not professional journalists, and so yeah, I mean there is a there's a line I I don't have it to hand here. Um, oh, I think it's sort of in the intro to the podcast here and it says during these last few years John has watched friends get caught up in the online culture wars to such a degree that they've lost everything their careers their well-being so you've seen this in your own personal life mm. oh yeah 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 I've, I've seen friends I've watched I've sort of sat here and just watched it unfold on social media people yeah losing everything um, successful writers get too involved in a particular culture war and the next thing they know they've lost their family they've lost their reputation they've lost their livelihood and it was just I don't know I, I felt are these people the canaries in the coal mine are we all going to go that way uh, or many of us are going to start you know is there something inherent about the way that we live on the internet that is doing something to our brains that that that's very new and destructive. That that was the question. And then I thought, well, how am I going to tell that story? And the answer I came up with is, well, I'm going to go back to the beginning. I'm going to tell origin stories to see how we got this way, how how we ended up here. America is weird uh, in yeah. ma in many ways, and 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 in many ways, it's provided. I think it's fair to say, both yourself and Louis Theroux, who you do a very interesting episode with at the end of the podcast series about, I suppose, about your process and your, your, your intentions when you're, when you're making this, this, this kind of content. Um, I think in the, almost in the first episode, you mentioned Alistair Cook. The, and Alistair Cook's famous Letters from America right. were a oh, staple yeah. of the BBC for, for decades. And he interpreted this large, weird, incredibly powerful country to, to BBC listeners for, for many years. And in a way, you and Louis Theroux are kind of the, the gonzo grandsons of, of what he was doing, mm. isn't he? Aren't you? Yeah, him, e except, Nick Broomfield. Except that you're both now, except, and Nick Broomfield as well, except that you're also mm. American media 
producers now as well. So again, to kind of come back to where I started, everything's got blurred together, hasn't it? Yeah, I, I think that's true. I'm quite glad about that. I remember like, you know, there's been periods in my past where people have said you can't do... Uh, don't do American stories. So don't, you know, America, we're, we're sick of American stories here in Britain. Don't do America. And I'm glad that doesn't happen anymore. I'm, I'm glad that, uh, uh, I, you know, every human being has an amazing, I, I know this sounds like a cliche, but there are amazing stories everywhere. If you set, if you set yourself rules, like I can't do that amazing story because it's geographically wrong, or I can't do that amazing story because the protagonist is unfashionable, whatever. You know, it kills good stories. For me, the story is everything. And just tell us what exactly you will be doing when you come to uh, to Liberty Hall in June. I've got, well, it's a 90-minute show. I've got a mystery guest uh, who is worth the price of admission alone. Uh, I'll be telling new stories, some old stories, uh, some funny stories, some dark stories. There'll be a QA. and uh, a mystery guest, some video clips, uh, but it, but it's basically a story set around things fell apart. You know, how did things fall apart, and how can things come back together? John, thanks very much for joining us. Hugh, it was a delight. Thank you. And John's live show, Things Fell Apart, comes to Liberty Hall Theatre in Dublin on June the 10th. More information at singularartists.ie. He's also going to be at the Festival of Writing and Ideas, which is in Boris House in Carlo, on June the 11th and 12th. You can find more about that at festivalofwritingandideas.com. That's it from us, though, for today. Our producer is Declan Conlon, and you can get in touch with us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. <laughs>